Hey folks, and tonight's episode is brought to you by YesPleaseVintage.com. If you're in the States and a fan of vintage and upcycled housewares and clothing, give YesPleaseVintage.com a check for clothing, jewelry, homeware, and some really awesome finds. So go check them out now at YesPleaseVintage.com. And currently, if you spend over $60, you get free shipping on all orders. Hello and welcome to the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my host, the Professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Howdy. This is episode 112. Tonight's feature presentation is The Assassin from 2016. Uh, but before we get on tonight, it's time to ask what you've been watching. And Stephen, since the last episode, what has been holding your interest, if anything? So I've got a couple of things, something as a rewatch, and I guess a little bit of a spoiler for something else that we've been doing in the meantime, but this will probably come out before that does. So as you know, you and I both guested on an episode of um, a Tarantino, Scott's Tarantino, what's it called? Tarantino? Church of Tarantino. Church of Tarantino, that's right. Sorry, yeah, sorry, Scott. It's our home away from home now. It, it, is, for, it is for you, you're on it every, every week, but um, I, I came from my second visit. And obviously Scott's a friend of the show, been on the show before. Um, and we looked at Kill Bill Volume 1. And as a um, sort of aid memoir for that, I rewatched one of my favourite films of all time, Lady Snowblood. Because basically, Kill Bill Volume 1 is hugely influenced by that. Um, it also, of course, stars our favourite lady, uh, Maiko Kaji. And I just... I just I mean, you've seen it. Obviously, you've seen it. Probably, everybody who's watched it, listens to the show, has probably seen this film. It's it's just it's just this wonderful Japanese movie. But what I'd forgotten is, even though it was like made in 1973, quite how modern a lot of it was. I'd forgotten about the. There's a couple of moments where it uses. Um, bits of the manga that it's based on in fact the fact that it's based on a manga at all you know we always think i, I often think japanese cinema these days all it is is manga and anime adaptations and guess what lady snowblood was back in 1973 and of course there's all those lone wolf and cub movies and things like that but i never i always forget lady snowblood is based on a manga so there's that which of course the, the kill bill movie does as well but with with a bit of anime um mika kaji is fantastic but it's just so elegant and lovely and, and like in the snow with her parasol and it's also really quite dark and i always forget how dark it is it's just it's just a movie i really love so i really enjoyed sort of preparing for the show and going back and watching that there's a couple of other movies i watched as well which we didn't end up talking about that, that sort of influence about that but that's the asian cinema one the other one was um inspired by our last episode or our last episode of Asian Cinema Film Club at least um, when we looked at I Saw the Devil I realised that I keep going on how much I love films by um, the director Kim Ji-Woon but I hadn't actually seen a few of his more recent ones so um, after I saw I Saw the Devil Kim Ji-Woon went off to Hollywood and made a made a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger and that was received in a somewhat mediocre way. Uh, you didn't like it. Oh, I liked it, but I think in generally it was received 
it's a fairly mediocre. I don't think it tore up any trees, won any box office things. So I thought it was quite good. I liked it. But he came back with his reputation fair to, to career, his reputation fairly untouched, unsullied by that experience, which hasn't always been the case of our Asian uh, directors who've gone over to Hollywood, um, with some Warner Brothers money and got to make the 2016 movie The Age of Shadows. Like I say, I don't know why I haven't watched this before. It's right my cup of tea if I tell you it's set in 1920s occupied Korea and 1920s Shanghai. I mean, this is my favourite period in history cinematically. Um, It also stars Song Kang-ho, who, you know, is, is in just about every great Korean film of the last 20 years. Um, and also has obviously worked before with um, Kim Ji-woon. And uh, Gong Yu, you all know Gong Yu. He's the male lead from Train to Busan. But he's in quite a lot of really good movies and he's got this uh, real sort of charm and charisma about him. So like I say, set in the 1920s, it's occupied Japan and uh, Song Kang-ho basically plays a collaborator so he's a he's a he's a career man who's basically in the occupying japanese police force sort of hunting down resistance fighters um gong yu um is a sort of a local resistance fighter and they are going to perform um that gong yu and his gang are going to perform a uh, an act of terrorism or freedom fighting depending which way you're looking about it and while song kang ho is kind of tasked with tracking it down and stopping it uh, events at the beginning of the film um, and some of his history are making him waver a bit. And so the, sort of the leader of the resistance, who's played by Lee Byung-hun, who you, you remember from lots of things, but including I Saw the Devil, um, is encourages Gong Yu's character to kind of turn him. So there's a whole espionage plot, life during wartime thing going on with these two great actors sort of doing this sort of dance around each other about who's going to be a traitor what's really happened um it's quite violent i mean obviously kim ji woon learned a lot about or nice or the devil about showing some gore um includes a scene where a, a man who's had his toe shot um rips it off in front of us and various other things there's some scenes of torture which are quite upsetting it's um quite visceral it's, it's a little bit gory I will say it's a little bit overlong. Again, around two hours, 20 minutes. Um, it's also quite hard to follow. I think if you are if you were Korean and knew the, the, the history here, I think it might make things a bit easier to follow. There are a lot of characters. There are a lot of characters that maybe are a little bit um, extraneous to the plot. But saying all that, I bloody loved it. Um, really annoyed at myself that it took me... Um, seven years to get round to watching it um really really good um pair it's another film from a similar time called assassination which is sort of set in a similar time with a similar story so both both of them are nice pair although quite exhausting and maybe not the happiest endings but yeah another kim ji win classics another two from me mate what about yourself oh for myself it's been an interesting uh viewing period really because i saw i saw a couple of things two things in particular just like completely reshifted my uh rolling top 50 for the year uh one being a film that's obviously not asian cinema related but very well worth checking out and that's perfume the story of a murder from, murderer from 2006 
uh, which is just a phenomenal film and has jumped into my uh, top 10 for this year's film discoveries alongside uh, my other one of my other picks here which is uh, Ran from 1985 by uh, the maestro Akira Kurosawa have you seen Ran? Well, it's kind it's of the adaptation of King Lear. Yeah, it's kind of funny because it was going to be my next choice. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I've had a, I've, I've I have seen it before, and it, yeah, I, but I, I was sorting through. I've had a bit of a refit in the in the flat, and I, I, I was, I pulled out as sort of sorting out my DVDs and Blu-rays. I thought, oh, Ran, that will be a good one, and I've put it on the pile for us for, for thinking that's the one I'll bring. You know, when when we've had a couple of light films or something like that, I think we've um we've had some some heavy stuff going on, but it was there. But however, it doesn't matter. We'll just put it back a bit. Did you enjoy it? Oh my god, this is like what the French record says: "Cinema c'est fantastique." <laughs> it's the sort of film that you they spend like six hours clapping at at Cannes. Mm. It's a truly phenomenal uh, piece of work, and it was one because we've done like, a couple of Kurosawa movies on here, but. They've not really connected with me in the same way that, like, uh, like Ikaro or Tizamusha have. So it's like kind of like doubting my sort of stance on Kurosawa just off what we had watched, because especially we watched the long cut of Seven Samurai, and I'd obviously grown up watching the shorter uh, cut that was obviously on the BBC, which doesn't have the intermission. So that was a completely uh, different experience. And you get to Ran, and it's like, oh, this is a Shakespeare adaptation. And we all know that when it comes to Shakespeare adaptation, it can be a bit flowery, it can be a bit uh, up its own self. Uh, but Ran really is not. Ran is a phenomenal um, piece of work and just sort of like really emphasizes why Kurosawa is, you know, the maestro that he is. And it's funny, really, when you look at look at Toho Studios, the two guys who we were like spending pretty much all of the money were Kurosawa and Honda. Mm. Under obviously doing the Godzilla movies, um, Kurosawa obviously doing these samurai epics, and you look at Ran, and it's this phenomenal piece of filmmaking. There's a cast of thousands. There's epic battles. There's political intrigue, and it's all based around this warlord who, uh, in his advanced years, he's getting a bit senile and losing his lust for war. So he decides that he's going to pass the empire over to his eldest son, which. Of course, leads to all hell erupting because he's got a very manipulative wife who's running her own plot. Uh, and the fact this is like two and a half hours long, but I broke it up into a couple of pieces because, you know, life mm. and not being in that, you know, luxurious position that some people are where they can just sit around and watch something for two and a half hours. But even breaking it up, it still didn't lose any of its power here. And it is just a really phenomenal film. And obviously, if we're going to cover up the show, we can go into it in much more detail. But there's a scene where a stuntman falls off a horse, gets run over by his own horse, and then run over by the guy riding the horse behind him, which, as always, brings to attention the wonderful uh, health and safety that Japanese stuntman has. <laughs> Yeah, because he he gets fallen trampled by a horse, and it's like wow, and it stays it stays in the kid stays in the picture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the thing I also appreciate about this is the fact that all the armies are color coordinated. Yeah. So when you're having like big battle sequences, it's easy. It's like oh yeah, the red team are this guy and the blue team. Teams. That's completely <laughs> underlining the whole thing, isn't it? So. <laughs> 
it's easy to follow. It's all like, well, I know who the the red team. The I can't quit it now. The red team's allegiance is, and I know who the blue guys are and stuff. And it makes it just super easy to to follow. And 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 shows you that wasn't invented by Curse of the Golden Flower, right? Which which takes that no obviously CGI that, it um, up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That director obviously likes to have a color palette within mm. his films, um, be it in the flashbacks or just throughout the film. Like in mm. Shadow, we obviously had the blacks and greys. Um, in Hero, we had the colours for the different flashbacks. And yep. with House of the Flying Dagger, it was all greens, wasn't it? So It, it, it was. But, but you know, that colour, the colour coding of the armies, which is the word you've been struggling for. Um, you say army, seems... I say team. They're a bunch of people. Uh, you, life is just one big Takeshi's castle for you, isn't it? But... Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's just a phenomenal piece of filmmaking. And I know it's easy, isn't it? Sometimes they all like, oh, Kurosawa, he's great. It's a bit, you know, I feel a bit like um, Ozu and Kurosawa and a couple of others, and they just automatically get a pass. But I think you're right. Um, I, I think we both enjoyed Seven Samurai, although, as you explained, uh, it, it, it was different watching it for you this time. Um, we watched the other one far more recently, um, Hidden, Hidden Fortress, Fortress, which I think we were both surprised how disappointed we were with it. And to be fair, we didn't get a lot of blowback for that in the Facebook group. I thought I thought <laughs> we, we, more people would uh, criticise us for it, but actually some agreed and some just said, well... Fair enough. <laughs> but, um, you're probably reminding some people now. It's like, you're right, I was still pissed off. <laughs> no, I didn't think we thought it was bad. I just think we 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 didn't think it was in the upper echelons. Because we've both seen other, you know, it's not Rashomon, it's not Ran, it's not... Um, what else did I enjoy of his? I love High and Low, which is just a yeah. completely different thing altogether. Um, so, yeah... But it's, don't worry, I wouldn't be able to watch it in two and a half hours. Um, Age of Shadows, it took me three days to watch it, and that's two hours and 20 minutes. That's mostly because I fall asleep. Not because it's boring, it's just because I'm old. And that's what happens now. <laughs> Any film longer wow. than 75 minutes long, mate, it's going to be a watch over two sessions at least. But yes, yeah, so... one, one, wonderful movie. Yeah, so obviously vibing off how, that experience, I um, went onto Arrow Player because Arrow Player have got um, Punk Samurai, which is by Shogo Ishii, who directed uh, Electric Dragon, Eighty Thousand Volts, Crazy Thunder Road, Burst City. Um, he's kind of like a, a favourite of, of them over at uh, Furbinder Films. And having seen like the clips of this one, it looked really visually interesting, and I was went into it affecting like. Um, and the zoomy sort of like pop samurai movie, but what you get instead is something kind of it's almost like a Mike movie in its sort of like weirdness. Um, as you have this uh, lone samurai called Juno uh, Shin Kaiaki, who's played by Go Anyo, who's um, a Ronin, and he's brought into this uh, clan who he's trying to be become part of. And he's at the same time he's covering for the fact he's just accidentally murdered a beggar, believing that he's part of this clan, um, this cult called the Belly Shakers clan, who believe that uh, the world is inside the intestinal gut of a, a giant tapeworm. <laughs> kind of like a fun take on the Norse mythology of you know the serpent, the raptor, and the world. 
Yeah. You know, you, you've all played God of War. You know what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he ends up, at the same time, you've got the two heads in this uh, clan who are trying to score points over each other. And one gets sent, uh, gets sort of shamed and has to go off to become like uh, the head monkey trainer to keep the local villagers happy because by putting on the monkey shows, it keeps them happy and it allows them to keep working. And the other one decides that they're going to resurrect the clan and create this fake cult and in turn accidentally manages to cause the cult to resurrect themselves and go on a mass rampage. Um, this is a film I really wish I enjoyed more, but it actually is kind of like tedious in places and it also is kind of, the plot is kind of all over the place and it is adapted again from another um, manga, this one, uh, Punk Samurai Slashdown, which has been got this sort of legendary reputation for being unfilmable and certainly when you look at what they tried to do with the film and obviously trying to get a coherent storyline here, it doesn't exactly work, even though there are some fun ideas being thrown at the screen. And there are obviously some really nice visuals in here as well. You get a monkey army. Uh, and yeah, while they obviously have these really nice visual flares, a lot of that you see of in like the trailer and stuff, it just sadly failed to sort of like deliver on the fronts that I wanted. Um, so it's sort of like it was a one and done experience for myself. But I'd be really interested to know if anyone else sort of like had any sort of vibe with this one. Because as, as I say, it's on the Arrow player. So um, it's available there for to uh, check out at your leisure. Um, but yeah, as a, uh, as a director, I can't say that Ishii is really sort of doing anything for myself. I mean, I enjoyed Let's Dragon 80,000 Volts for its sort of randomness, but I think I saw it at the right sort of time because I saw that around the sort of time I was sort of like watching things such as like a Razorhead and Freaked and a lot of um, like Gregoraki movies. Right. So I was in the mindset of just watching weird, weird stuff. And then, but having like watched Crazy Thunder Road, I just can't get into that, even though the, the guys over there when the films were like raving about like how great it was. And, uh, but yeah, I just yet to find that one film, which sort of like makes me go, oh, this is, this is what it is about Ishii's work that uh, makes him so, so important that I think a lot of people, a lot of people seem to really enjoy his work, but I just really are not vibing with it. It's kind of like uh, yourself and uh, Shinzen Suzuki, mm. I which I will find in one of his films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it, that, in that case, it's, it's, it does sound similar because I should really love his work, shouldn't I? And and you know, every every everything you know about me says I should really enjoy those films. And for some reason, I don't connect. I haven't watched any of. Um, Gakuryu Ishii's movies. I was just having a little look down the filmography. I've got to be honest, other than Isn't Anyone Alive, I don't think I've even heard of any of them. But the fact that... So this is a third Windows film kind of thing, isn't it? And I've got to say, they, yeah. do, they do... I'm not always aligned. Of, of, of the boutique labels, third Windows... Third Window films sometimes are the ones i don't gel with quite as much i don't know why just that they're 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 curators and their buyers must just be working slightly differently to me but um 
Yeah, I'm just having a look if I recognise. They are the label that tend to be like the ones who do like the first time releases outside of Japan, which is obviously the case of Crazy Thunder Road. It had never been released outside of Japan until they obviously brought it across. Yeah. So and and they, they, they they're good for that. And they do have a good. I mean, I say that, and then they have put out you know Summer Time Machine Blues and. Um, oh, the God, story men, I think was one of theirs, wasn't it? Men's Manual as well. Um, they've done some nice bits of um, God. The fellow who did um, Tetsuo um, Shinya. Oh, Shinya to Sakamoto. Sakamoto. They've done a few of his earlier things, like Snake of June. I'm sure is a. Oh no, maybe that was a no. That was a tartan. It was some of his. That was a tartan stuff. originally, and yeah. I think that they picked it up afterwards. But, uh, they they, um, they do do some good coke by him. I tell you, my favorite film by him is The Third Windows, which is Kokoro, Kokoro, Kotoro, Kokoro. Um, so yeah, they do do some good stuff, but they are a little more quirky. They are a little more. They they are the only label really pushing indie Japanese cinema. So uh, fair play to them. Um, I just they're not. Like if Arrow or Eureka or um, who's the other one? Eighty eight films. Eighty eight films. Yeah, Master Cinema. If they put something out, I'll automatically go and have a look at it. Third Window Films, even though they do send me an email every week, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so because I've have bought stuff from them before, I, I just it, it takes something rather well, special for me to uh, get excited about. But no, I haven't. So you so you wouldn't suggest I go and have a delve into into this back catalogue for now. I'd say, well, the fact is all on the Arrow player makes it really mm. easy to sort of dive into it because you're not obviously having the financial risk of ending up with like a yeah a shiny coaster. Um, so you, especially as a lot of the boutique label stuff isn't the cheapest, so obviously having something like Arrow player does make it a little easier for you to, to check these films out without obviously having the risk there. Mm. Um at the same time, Terracotta have also just launched their streaming service as well, which has got a lot of titles that you won't see anywhere else. Some of them are on the Arrow Player and other places as well, but there's uh, a lot of stuff that, uh, like uh, Shackled, that's uh, on there, uh, and My Wife Pretends to Be Dead, um, that you aren't going to see anywhere else. So that's also another service worth uh, worth checking out, even though it's a very sort of crowded marketplace now for streaming platforms. I think that there's enough interesting titles on there to definitely warrant giving them a look, and it'd be interesting to see what they add in the coming months. Yeah, Joey, if you're listening, we'll we'll, we'll take screeners, won't we, mate? He's an enthusiastic fellow. He is indeed. Yes, I have met him, but but I doubt he'll remember me. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Also out there in the internet verse, uh, we saw the announcement for the Independent Podcast Awards. Um which is exciting to see independent podcasting being given a platform because at the moment, it's, as I said, the podcast market is saturated as the streaming market um, and not helped by the fact that you have a lot of like C-list celebrities and opinionated folks having you know BBC backing to make sure their podcasts are seen over the indie guys. And, you know, it's uh, great to see that. And that's being organized, uh, co-organized with uh, Emma Verbal Diorama and... Um, Another company whose name I could lost the sheet now, but um, yeah, if you uh, look up independent independent podcast awards, you can uh, have a look there, and you can also you know get it if you have an independent podcast, you can nominate yourself for an award. You could 
nominate i guess you could nominate your favorite podcast for an award it's why, why now 30 quid why now is um is the other thank person. you i yeah. saw you asking why now are they having an awards it's like no, cons- well I'm, I'm, I'm nice not going to recognize people. We'll, we'll have a chat about this offline. Emily, who obviously did the Barbie podcast with, did send me a message about this saying, shall we put 30 quid together to put ourselves forward with it? Um, I, don't, I, 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 I think you're right. I'm going to take your view. That this is a good thing and it's great because it's absolutely aimed at the people that are writing, making podcasts in their bedrooms that have got, a, you know, a... a, a, a a, 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 not necessarily a low number of listeners but you know that aren't actually sponsored by the BBC or some comedy company or we don't have Netflix specials or day jobs to go you know we, we have real day jobs to go to um, so it's pretty cool but yes I think yeah, we imagine do imagine our to... Netflix special it's like <laughs> two guys in a room <laughs> would anybody go for that let Netflix know It'd be like smashy and icy uh, smashy and nicey yeah well the, the fear is we'd probably <laughs> say something wrong and we'd be like Dave Chappelle wouldn't we or something um, <laughs> they'd just be... I think this is the uh, this is the uh, the problem because the, the one of the prices you can get sponsorship from different people um, and you know, just from my own personal standpoint, it's all like when you bring sponsorships in, they tend to also want control, which means that you probably see a reduction of penis trauma movies on, mm. on this show. Which, you know, do we really want that? Do we, like, take the payout and reduce the penis trauma, or do we keep the penis trauma and remain broke? It's not like... It's like the the line you walk as a, a, a podcast um, coordinator... However, if do our do our audience think we should invest the thirty quid and enter? Let us. It's know. also hard the fact you've got to find a ten minute block to submit, and it's sort of like we're 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 kind of like a, a very free form. So to find a, a solid ten minutes in there is, it's indeed, uh, indeed. But the, 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 I I think it's I I think it's a great idea, um, because I do think. You know, we've talked about this a lot off air, haven't we? That there is definitely a, a two-track world in the podcast world. And I think, especially during lockdown, podcasts got a lot of extra attention. But unfortunately, that, that extra attention was just more of the same people doing it, you know? And uh, to, to, to put some attention on us amateurs who've been doing it a long, long time, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like in the hope of just like, let's keep work, chugging away at it till they like give us the lifetime award and they give us the 30 quid. That's right. Let's go, let's go, let's go full um, Scorsese on it, shall we? Let's put out a, is, uh, yeah. our target at the minute. Let's put out a really shit episode and they'll just give it to us to, uh, to make up for it. <laughs> Um, speaking of verbal diorama, Emma's also been talking about the Roland Emmerich um, adaptation of Godzilla. And I was very keen to know your thoughts on this one, Stephen, because from my own personal standpoint, and I did obviously pass these these notes across to her, is the fact that I feel that it's a film that's very unfairly bashed by all the snark casters you see on YouTube, who just sort of like bash away at it. And myself, it, it hit the criteria. It's a giant monster. The setting's interesting because it's New York. Um, and the fact that you sort of like top it off with the fact that you got Jean Reno and it's doing its own thing with the material and spawned a great Saturday morning cartoon. So for myself, 
I've no problems with the Roland Emmerich version. I think it did a lot better version than the Brian Cranston version that we saw, which seemed to forget it was a Godzilla movie. <laughs> I'm not sure we can blame Brian Cranston. Only the problem with the Brian Cranston movie is that he's only in the first fucking ten minutes of it, and they kill him <laughs> off, and uh, the rest of it. You're absolutely right. Although there are a lot of Godzilla movies where Godzilla doesn't pay. We're following. Is it? Channing Tatum, is that who it is? No, Charlie. What? No, no, no. It's um that kid from Kickass who That's was interesting right. as a nerdy kid. Aaron Taylor really... Joy, yeah. No, yeah, he got really bulky, bulked up, um, and nobody bought him as an action hero. And it's and, all like, yeah, and you literally are following him around, and at one point he goes somewhere, realizes he's going to the wrong place, and turns back again. And it's just that it's just that meandering nature of the movie. So the Roland Emmerich movie, which you're right, is 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 slammed and we've obviously covered Godzilla Wars where even the the the, the Japanese makers have a little oh, yeah. diss of it, don't they? Um, Godzilla fans have accepted this Godzilla. I mean they call him Zilla. Mm. They don't like say that he's like, you know, the Japanese Godzilla. And I I love the fact that he's got his own thing. He's just he's Zilla, which means that he's not bound to right. the same rules as Godzilla. Obviously not that Godzilla ever had rules to begin with. <laughs> obviously she's Zilla. <laughs> plot spoilers for the big plot point at the end of the movie, but it's a female Godzilla, isn't it? Because it's laying eggs. I don't know. It could be um, like those frogs that can. Yeah, stop, true, um... true, true. Yeah, there are. It could be a hermaphrodite mm-hmm. Godzilla. It could be like Jurassic who's, Park. Who's of looking at Godzilla scat? Yeah, it's it's obviously Jurassic Park has the same thing, doesn't it? That they some of them change gender, like the frogs. Anyway, I remember when it came out, and it's very much of its time. Right, this is the same time that we're getting Independence Day and the sort of massive summer, expensive, brain dead movies. This is before Marvel took over this whole thing. Emmerich had a good few years run at this, didn't he? Where he was he was putting out movies like this. And I remember I was going to the cinema regularly at this time. Was it? Are we talking about ninety seven, ninety eight, something like that? Ninety eight. Ninety eight, yeah. So I, I would have been going to the cinema fairly regularly. I didn't have children yet. Um and I was watching a lot of commercial cinema and I remember seeing the trailers for this one come out. And I thought they were fucking amazing. Also remember at that time I probably hadn't watched very many Godzilla movies. I wasn't into the I w- it was probably the first Godzilla movie I would have ever seen at the cinema. Everything else would have been some something maybe I don't know, like a late night Channel 4 or something like that. I I can't even think where I would have even seen it on TV, a Godzilla movie. So this was a big deal. And like you say, it's quite quite this crowd, you know, it's quite the the load of stars in it. Matthew Broderick, he's always a a comforting persona, isn't he? Yeah, he's Ferris Bueller. He's, um, what's the other film he did that's uh, War Games? I mean, he's he's the fucking kid in War Games, which is like one of the founding movies for me um he's also in that uh, really great netflix series daybreak which uh sadly got cancelled after one series in it it's a show that was really really good yeah so I, I i i've always got a lot of time for broderick i think i think he's he's a nice everyman guy to to move a film around special effects are good and i think at the end of the day it does its own thing all right it's big it's loud but it's in new york we understand it it, it was I thought it was hugely entertaining. Now, is it a film I've gone back and watched since I saw it all those years ago? We're talking 25 years ago. I can't think that I did. 
But I didn't hate it. I'm not offended by its existence at all. And I had way more fun with it than I did with... Is it Gareth Edwards or Gareth Evans? It's Gareth somebody's Godzilla movie. You know, I did other things in that MonsterVerse stuff. I did enjoy a lot, like Skull Island, but... I think it's um, it shouldn't be viewed as the bastard son of of Godzilla movies, and I think I will. Now you've brought it up, I think I might dig out a copy and and give it a rewatch. It's twenty five years. Also, fucking Puff Daddy doing. I don't know. Was he Puff Daddy at the time? Can't remember. Yeah, he was. But he was he still Puff the Daddy. The, old, was, uh... the Led Zeppelin riff. Um, I bought that. I've got that on CD single somewhere. I love that fucking song. <laughs> that and Jamiroquai's Deeper Underground. Yeah, yeah, it had a good sound. It was just, it was just a really good, well packaged movie. Like I said, the trailers were excellent, although they didn't they show, and they didn't show scenes which were in the film. But they're no, all... you had the uh, Godzilla foot standing on the T Rex um, skeleton, mm. and it was like all oh, the size matters. Yeah, yeah, so. I just it, it, it's definitely of its time. It's that pre-millennial mon- big movies. Armageddon. There's another one for you. I'm I'm gonna pull them all out, mate. Of the uh, of the but the Independence Day, Armageddon, Godzilla, and probably it's the probably the. I just think it's got a false. I think it was panned at the time, right? And people didn't like the fact that it was laying eggs and things like that. But yeah, I, I'd I'll watch it again. I'm all right with it. I think it's yeah. Next episode, mate. I'll try and watch it before next episode. Okay. I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll set that as a little challenge for each other. To, to, yeah. To have a little revisit I mean, I, of I've, that. I've watched it regularly. I think it's great. There's mm. certain scenes in it which still make me make me laugh, such as like the scene where they're in the lift and they open it, and it's like all the uh, mini Godzillas are there eating popcorn. I think that's still mm. really fantastic. Uh, when the mini Godzillas slip on the gumballs is great. The indestructible taxi cab. Every single scene with you, you know, in it is fantastic. So yeah, I'm. I will be interested to hear what your thoughts as someone who hasn't obsessively watched it over and over again. I mean, God, it's normally on Channel Five most weeks. So. I think I've got it on DVD or something somewhere, but oh, I found a remastered one. So yeah, I'll definitely give that a check out. Um, and obviously you can check out Emily's episode over at Verbal Diorama where she's obviously going to be talking about it and uh, yeah, tune in next week to hear Stephen's thoughts on Godzilla I don't know why I'm pausing because the bikers are on your side so I know, I'm, I'm afraid summer has arrived in Reading <laughs> and um... You're rolling into town like Mad Max and are just, they? Uh, well, this happened to me at work earlier today but earlier today a real boy racer in what I can only assume was a souped-up Fiesta 1.1 <laughs> went past, and you'd have thought it was Max Verstappen the noise it made. But yes, I do. I do apologise if you can hear the uh, boy racers and the Hell's Angels, which seem to love to drive up and down my road at twenty to midnight on a Friday night. There's uh, the there's the magic gone. I've told you all what time it is. But, uh, yeah, that was the week that was. Um, we're going to turn turn to find the projector now and uh, check out tonight's feature presentation, which is the assassin.
Uh, so tonight we're obviously talking about The Assassin from 2015. Um, this is a film that Steven chose and one that I'd seen floating around but I never actually got around to watching until now. Um, the film follows a female assassin who is uh, sent back by a master to her hometown to kill the man that she was formerly in love with. Uh, this uh, for the film uh, stars um, Shikui. Shikui, yeah. Shikui, um, who is probably best known for... Um, I don't remember why I've seen Shikui in now, because I'm getting, I think I'm going to confuse with Zhang Xi now, because... Shu Kui was in like Sex and Zen, is that right? So Shu Kui has a history. Of, she's a, a very interesting looking Chinese lady. She's incredibly lithe and tall and amazing legs and these bee stung lips. No one else quite looks like her. She did make her start as an actress in movies like Sex and Zen, yes. So there are movies with her with her boobies on display, but she has become a, you know, a proper serious actress who appears in film. You know, this is a, this is an art house movie. Um, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to get her um, thing up. So she was in the transporter as well. She had a brief down she, well, in Hollywood. She, she, she was indeed. She's in the first transport, transporter movie with, I'm just trying to think other films. I mean, obviously, because she's although she's Taiwanese, she's obviously done a lot of stuff in Hong in Hong Kong, which means there's a million bloody movies. Um, Wesley's Mysterious Files, which I don't think we've watched. A fantastic movie called So Close. Um, she was in the sequel to The Eye, The Eye Two, so she was the lead in that. Um, is in Legend of the Fist, which we covered during Anthony Wong month. Indeed, that's the Donnie Yen movie, isn't it? Yes, it's the one yes. where he dresses up as Kato uh, from the Black, from the Green Hornet. I'm just trying to see if she's appeared in anything else. Um, no, nothing else that we've covered. But she's an incredibly popular actress, um, and but she manages to be a model and some low rent movies and some really high super class movies, and um, I just. Fascinating, but there's no, there's, you know, I've said this about a couple of actresses. Is um, but just no one else looks like her. She's incredibly recognisable because she's just, I don't know, I, I assume she's Eurasian. There's something about her that she she just looks a little bit different. But yeah, one lots of what Viva Erotica. That's another one that she's famous for, and she's married to uh, director Stephen Fung. Well, he's lots of things, but he did all the Tai Chi Zero movie. Tai Chi and Tai Chi Zero, did he not? Yes, he did. Tai Chi Zero and Tai Chi Hero and directed All About Women and House of Fury. Yeah, lots of things. Yes, so he did the uh, Gen X Cops and Gen Y Cops. He did. He's been, he's, yeah, he's, he's acted in them. He's directed stuff. He's, um, House of Fury is quite a lot of fun, actually. I think that's got Anthony Wong in it. It has. There's one. There's one for you for your answer. It's got it's got Anthony Wong and the twins in it, mate, and Jay Chu. So yeah, everything's just coming together for and, today, isn't it? And Michael Wong. Oh, if you know who Michael Wong is, that's a treat in and of itself. <laughs> Michael you? Michael Wong. I'm never sure if he can actually speak Chinese or not. Oh, no, he's the Chinese man who can't speak Chinese. Absolutely, that's exactly he always, who it is. He always speaks English in all his movies. Yeah, yeah. he's 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 American, isn't he? But he, 
he yeah he's fluent in english but not in chinese just double checked but yeah there's a great twitter feed called michael wong gifts <laughs> <laughs> the opening uh gif is i'm michael wong <laughs> yeah he is um, he's he's he's, a, he's an intro yeah he's he's, he's very interesting because normally the people that speak english in hong kong movies are just people they tourists they find on the streets but this guy is legitimately an actor <laughs> And he's in some good movies as well. He's in Beast Cops. He's in First Option. He's got. He's in loads of bloody movies, good and bad. Bless him. Um, I have to say that Ni uh, Ni Ya Hong um, here on the on the Google page looks like Anthony Wong. And it's kind of upsetting, really, because I keep looking at it and going, "Oh, was Anthony Wong in this movie?" And it's like, no, Anthony Wong wasn't. So. <laughs> But yes, Shukri, yes, <laughs> that's where we were. So this is a movie. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm just raising and lead with on this one. Uh, this one is a very critically acclaimed movie. I believe it won the uh, Best best Picture at Cannes, mm, uh, where yes. it uh, received a prolonged standing ovation because that's what they like to do at Cannes. Yeah, and they've got time I, on their hands. I don't think that would happen anywhere else in France. That sounds an incredibly American thing to do, stand up and give a... I, I can't see most French people doing much more than a Gallic shrug at a movie, but yes, they do. So this was me being a bit mean to you, I think. <laughs> Maybe not a bit mean to you, but obviously I'm on record. I'm a huge fan of Taiwanese new wave directors. And so far, I've introduced you to two of them with mixed success. So I made you watch The Terrorizers by Edward Yang, which mm. I think is probably one of your least favourite films that we've done on the show. It's a benchmark for something. And although more Edward Yang to come, um, because I won that quiz. Um, the other one was Chai Ming Liang, who... You watch Goodbye Dragon Inn, and you shocked me by really enjoying that. <laughs> so that's true. So I mean, there, there are others, but this Doctor Hu Xiaoxian um, is probably the sort of the third shining light of that movement. Um, obviously, Edward Yang's passed away, but Hu and Tsai are obviously still making films now. Um, and I'm not going to lie; I haven't watched a lot of whose films um just just a well i would say a handful but that would mean at least five wouldn't it so less more like four <laughs> including this one and when this came out um i watched it i think i maybe even had a review copy or something like that but we did a thing on easternkicks.com where we did eastern kickers react where basically every all the writers put together a couple of paragraphs of what their feelings of the film of a film was and then I'd have to gather them all together and create some kind of narrative out of that because we were trying to do a, a, a written version of a YouTube reacts video and whether it worked or not I don't know but we talked about a few okay. films but the assassin was one of them uh, battle royale was another now what I can tell you is honestly usually when we did this Everybody loved the movie, so it's quite hard to produce some kind of balance, a sort of balanced document or ba balanced story because everyone's like, "Oh, it's really good because of this, it's really good because of that." The assassin split people down the middle. You either loved it or you didn't get it at all. <laughs> mm. And my guess is that's what's going to happen tonight. 
But I could be wrong. I didn't say whether you loved it or don't get it at all, though. So please oh, tell I intention- me. I intentionally left it uh, my rating of letterbox. Yeah, well, so I, I, ha- that... I have as well. <laughs> I know that you had, that um, you check on my letterbox scores. I do, uh, I, I, I do just to check. We usually just check you've watched it. But, um, yeah, it is. I, I, I was obviously doing the same thing as me now because I haven't put a rating on my letterbox yeah. either after the rewatch. I but, think, as I said, when it came to this one, it was like one of those movies I knew. I knew if I put a rating up, then it's going to enter into this conversation with this sort of like um, pre this image already of of what I, what my sort of take on the film was going to be. So to add the element of surprise there, okay, um, I thought I would I would hide my rating for it. But okay. the film itself is uh, based on the late seventh century martial arts story Nizing Jiang uh, by Pi Zing, um, one that we've all read. Yeah. I know, I'm sure you so, required reading. Like Thunderbolt, isn't it? You're just <laughs> right there on top of the, the reading file. Yeah. Um, but the film is set in the 7th century China, set during the last years of the Tang Dynasty following the Lushan Rebellion uh, with the circuit of Weibo, which is currently with the various nations being divided, Weibo being a, one of particular concern uh, to the ruling governors. This is a film which is very pretty to look at. And I've seen a lot of people say that, like, oh, the opening, like, five minutes of this film, you can understand why it won, like, Best Picture at Cannes. And I'm really surprised that it didn't follow up with, and then it continued for another two and a half hours. It's a film that moves at a very glacial pace, to say the least. If you're the sort of person who watches things like, so for a couple of movies and like complains that nothing's happening then this really would not be the film for you because there are long stretches where nothing appears to be happening there are very prolonged shots that are held at the same time everything's shot with a very exquisite often wide lens to to it uh the cinematography here being handled by mark lee ping bing who does an absolutely phenomenal job of shooting this film it's absolutely beautiful to look at and it falls into that sort of art house um, category of the things such as like Hero and House of the Flying Daggers. At the same time, it has a plot which is largely felt indecipherable um, and often lacking in anything happening while having such flowery moments such as uh, one of the leaders sort of resigning from his post to become a glass polisher that made me think that this was a Bernard Black script from Black Books. Um, <laughs> did you remember that one where he wrote the uh, children's book? And he's sort of like, Manny says, like, it's a little longer, 400 pages. And he's sort of like, well, I don't understand what's not to understand. It's, you've got the professor who's suffering from flashbacks <laughs> to the Stalinistic purges. And the reporter who's investigating who falls in love with his daughter only to give out to become a lens grinder in Minsk. I don't understand what's to follow, not to follow here. This is the situation I felt with this film. It was like, I'm sure there's a story here, but I've really no clue what it was. And I'm sure Stephen's going to like shine a great light to this and say that, you know, that this is a very straightforward film to watch and that, you know, it's just, uh, you know, uncivilized youth like myself who don't appreciate these things. Um, No, I'm not going to say that at all, right? Okay. So... I pretty much agree with everything you said. Yeah. I think it is 
beautiful. It's not just the first five minutes. The whole 105 minutes of this film is, well, yeah, is, so. is gorgeous. It's shot beautifully. I mean, Mark Lee is is a great cinematographer. Um, I can't remember what else I've done, but I, I, I'm not going to click on it on Wikipedia right now. But, um, you know, it's, one of, it's like um, Christopher Doyle, sort of just one of those great cinematographers of, of Asian cinema. Um, it does amazing things as well, which I don't know if even if you notice, but it changes um, aspect ratio throughout the movie as well. So a lot of it's in like what we would call 4-3, but then it'll switch to widescreen. So it's, it does some really interesting things like that. Um, I guess if you've got an anamorphic version of it, you won't notice that. <laughs> it'll just, the screen will just keep changing and cutting things out. But yes, um, I think Shukui is just looks amazing, although she only says about five words in the entire film. But, and I think um, as a Westerner, I think there are two words I could use. We could either call it impenetrable in terms of the plot, or we could call it, I think, I think the posh word that you would use when writing a review is it would say it's, the plot is elliptical, right? <laughs> which, is, yeah. which is one of those things they always say about sort of these artsy movies where it's quite hard to understand. I, I challenge anybody who is not Chinese. In fact, I'll go further because it's actually not even Mandarin, mate. It's the, the language used is an older version of Chinese that no one speaks. Oh yeah, they had to have subtitles for yeah for the actual homeland <laughs> audience, which yeah, is yeah, so amusing. So this is not modern Mandarin that they're speaking. This is like um, is, is that guy? There's somebody who does films at the moment, doesn't he? In Cornish sort of dialect, like Ennis Men is the film. He did a film before it where. It, it's all done in not a dead language, but languages that most people don't speak. So it's a bit like that. I, I challenge Polish anybody... is a difficult one because there's six variations and none of them are dominant. Mm. It, yeah, and well, there's lots of languages in China like that as well. But this is this isn't even one that's spoken by anybody. So it's beautiful. The plot's hard to follow. I don't think anybody in the West, if they are telling me that they followed this story, watching it on one watch. They're a liar, because I think it, I I can't. Follow. I had to go to Wikipedia or reviews of it just to even try and understand. Part of that's because, as you say, it does appear like nothing's happening. But what's happening is the the the. the it's almost like this is almost like a Dogma ninety five Chinese movie because he's refusing to show too much through flashbacks. There are a couple of flashbacks, but basically, whole swathes of the plot are explained in these oral exchanges which go on for 10-15 minutes at a time so like the, the the prince might be talking to his mother and they're explaining a whole bunch of things and it just makes no sense to us now I promise you if you were to rewatch this two or three times things would start becoming clearer but I do I don't expect you ever to come back to this film again other than maybe if you wanted to uh, screenshot some of it to make some nice wallpaper for your for your PC or something, because I think that's its thing. So I I did adore it, but I do think so. I think when I reviewed it the first time, I called it like watching a Wusha movie from through a gossamer curtain. Right, you can see kind of what's going on. There's all those components are there that we understand about movies. You know, the whole sort of flying over rooftops and super capable um swords people and 
maybe there's a corrupt you know it's all clearly set in the young wheel whatever it's called you know the, the the world of the martial arts where there's a corrupt um society going on and and our sword fighter is kind of fighting for right and that goes on a journey you know the same story that's in i don't know come dine with me and 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 things like that could i don't i don't mean come do i mean come don't drink with me? me come drink with me yeah come dine with me yeah watch a lot of yeah that's the thing dave lamb does not narrate this um no but i'm sure mark cousins would love to speak <laughs> and tell us what's happening on the screen well but i don't i, I think you'd just sit there saying and this put and and, and um yeah, Tian Jian's wife is now talking. I mean, the, the classic thing is sort of the example of how, what the fuck is going on in this movie is occasionally a woman appears, a further assassin type woman, but wearing a mask appears. And actually, that's the. Um, she's the wife of the official that Xu Kui's assassin's been sent to kill, who she had a. You know, she was betrothed to marry in a previous age, but he ends up marrying this other woman but it's never yes, really it's her cousin as well it's n- originally she's sent out to fill an, um, a governor yeah and she chooses not to because uh, there's uh, holding a child in there yeah yeah so she has this moment of weakness and uh this uh nun that she's been raised to be be an assassin like um sends her off to test her loyalty by having her assassinate her cousin who's this uh, governor of the Weibo region yeah so, so um, yeah, so so, but the other woman is his wife, and but it's never clear why is his wife, and why does she wear a mask, and 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 you know it's just so much isn't obviously explained, and I absolutely understand why people watch this and think what the fuck is this. <laughs> so I am sorry because I thought this would happen. The great thing about obviously doing the show is the fact you can watch something as seemingly undecipherable as this film and then obviously start to piece it together with and get a sort of like reassurance that it's not just your experience that you've had with this film, which is obviously what makes it so good to watch things like this or watch uh, like Goodbye Drain Gate In. These sort of more arty affairs concerns that sometimes you need someone to, you need to like sit down and talk it through. It's an experience very much like when I saw Dogtooth. Um, I didn't mm. really fully appreciate Dogtooth until I did um, a discussion with uh, Lackey over on um, the MBDS showcase days. And we had a really great discussion on it. And then it was like, as you're talking about it, it sort of like clicked into place. With this one, though, it's sort of, as I said, it's not certainly not as bad as the Terrorizers. I think, as I said, that's still a whole benchmark of its own. But there are moments where this film is like flashes of, of brilliance that are just then sort of squandered by having another prolonged conversation sequence or scenes of people just doing like slice of life activities where, where we just sort of like watch on. Or you get or you get a character like the man with the big beard and eyebrows that you recognise some other movies like this, but he's never really explained and then he gets killed off and I, I do promise you if you were to watch this a few times it would uncover itself more but I think that's sometimes a bit of a cheat and that's something somebody says 
oh no, you're just not bright enough to understand it. But <laughs> that's not what's going. I mean, this isn't Southland Tales. No, I mean, oh, no. Multiple viewings that's... are not going to make this any clearer for yourself. But that's um, yeah, that's not what's going on here. It, I I I've actually think I've read something by Who, which it kind of suggests it's not designed to be understood in one sitting. It's almost designed to be obtuse, to be elliptical, to reward um, extra viewings. But I do think people in the West, West us Westerners, will find it so off-putting, so difficult to digest that. If you're not getting any more than the pretty pictures, I think it can be a real challenge to people. And I'm don't I'm not gonna quit and I think you're wrong about the terrorizers, but I <laughs> I absolutely get this is this is what I expected. Um it's only because you shocked me with Goodbye Dragon Inn. <laughs> That's I thought, oh, have my moments. Well, but I think, but a goodbye, Dragon Inn is is only elliptical in the sense that it doesn't have a lot of dialogue. It's still very understandable by the acting and the and 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 what occurs on screen, what is going on, right? The the few lines of dialogue are are irrelevant in here. The fact that so much of it is dialogue and so much of it doesn't make sense to us, and it's delivered in a very, you know. It's like a talking paintings, aren't they? That's that's you know the, the the scene. The camera won't move very much, and two people will talk to each other for five, six, seven minutes, and they'll be explaining something. There's a lot of explains, a lot of exposition in this film, and then there's these moments of action. So like when um, Chuki kills the uh, the first person that she kills, and she kills him so quickly, doesn't even know he's died until. He falls off his horse. There's sort of moments like that, and then like, why is that? Why is there a nun that's got a a horde of trained assassins? What is that about, mate? It's never really explained, is it? <laughs> no, it's kind of like the take on the old, the classic uh, Hong Kong trait of the warrior monk, isn't it? It's and and that's got... that's the thing. That's absolutely it. Everything in this film is something you will have seen before in. In a Shaw Brothers movie, in a in a I don't know, in some Taiwanese like a King Hu movie or something like that, these will all be things that we've seen before. The elements, but it's been put together in a it's like a jigsaw puzzle that's been put together a little bit wrong. And there's a lot of effort on you to put it back together again. And life can be too short to do that, right? It's also biggest frustrations here is the fact that when we do have these occasional action beats when we see her like when she's there stalking her target and she's as I said this ninja-esque presence that she's lurking in the rafters and she looks sort of like swoops down upon people um, or when we have like even like one of the couple of fight sequences here which is sort of like short and complete stillness there's no soundtrack to it there's just the occasional clashing vibes and it's shot with just this like fleet-footed choreography, then it really makes it such a shame that they didn't lean into these action sequences more. Because he certainly has an eye, even though this is his first jaunt into Wuxia cinema. He certainly has the eye for the action sequences. And as much as I enjoy, you know, like the misty vistas and the woodland landscapes and even like the interior sequences, um, there's just as I said, it was just these moments. It's all like when these action scenes they're treated like so they're so short and treated as so much like a an afterthought. And it's like when the moment the moments when the film really sort of like grabs you and it's all like things that 
you know, this is where he should have really been sort of like punching it up. It would have, if he really punched up those sort of action sequences, made them less of an afterthought, then I think this would have been a much more enjoyable experience and I would have tolerated like the stillness a lot more because you're giving the audience this sort of reprieve from just like engaged in this prolonged focus on on something that is not exactly doing much. As I said, the pace is very glacial for this film. It is not a quick film at all. Um, everything sort of takes its its time. And as you said already, there's no real flashbacks. Everything's explained through dialogue, which only adds to this uh, confusion that really didn't need to be there. Um, and yes, I mean, it's obviously going to charm perhaps some of the, the more arthouse crowd who uh, like to probably taking great glee in the fact that they got this on like the third or fourth viewing. But it, there was just so many like choices made through like the director's standpoint where I just felt that he could have gone in a different direction and and uh, just delivered a lot stronger than it does. Um, absolutely. Just going to go back to Mark. Um, Mark Lee Ping Bin, the cinematographer. I said he's done some famous films, <laughs> so um, just two come to mind. One is Air Doll, like the Corita film I talked about last time, where um, uh, Bay Dunar is the sex doll that comes to life. Um, but most impressively, he actually did the cinematography alongside Christopher Doyle in In the Mood for Love which is another film we will get to one day but if you like you know if you like the visuals on that this is this is in that kind of wheelhouse um i think yeah i i just i i get what you're saying 100% and um i also you know my colleagues in eastern kicks at the time this is sound, this sounds just so similar that, that that it's obtuse and it's elliptical and it's difficult to understand and I I bet you 90% of people who reviewed this film had to look up on some card to find out what the plot was about. They're, they're all making out, but they've all described exactly the same plot beats, which means they've all got it from the same place. <laughs> um, it's um, interesting. It's a real divide, isn't it? When you look at the reviews here, there's people who absolutely love this movie and they're all giving it like five star ratings. And then the other end, you've got people who are just like, you know, oh, this made no sense whatsoever. There, like two people, stars, yeah. And there's people who saying, if I could give this zero stars, I would. Um, on Letterboxd, it's it's got an absolute. You know, we, we talk about Marmite movies, don't we? Movies that you mm. either love or hate. And I think I don't even think people hate this movie. It's just like they're just like, what the fuck is this? You know, it's not offensive. It's not like movie forty three, right? It's not, it's not. It's clearly not bad, like a million other movies. It's just impenetrable. Um, and I'll give you a, it's, what it makes me think of is, and I think this is a film you've seen. Um, what's Wong Kar Wai's Wuxia movie called? Um, Ashes of Time. Yes. Which I think you brought that up now. Which I think is similarly in either of its versions, either Ashes of Time or Ashes of Time Redu- Redux. Redu? Is that how you say it? I don't know. Obviously, Redux. Redux. Yeah. Um, of which Redux is a, is a, is a reaction to uh, one cut away sort of people saying they didn't really understand what was going on. So I think he made it even more impenetrable. <laughs> Added some bits in, took some bits away, but they both stand on their own. But that is another example of a of an art house version of a wuxia movie. And wuxia movies are meant are, are traditionally, you know, they're 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 based on popular pulp novels. Yeah, they are the they are the 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 I don't know. They're like um, 
like Jallo, yeah, in, in not not in terms of the content, but they're they're just paperbacks that everyday people read and they're full of stories and they've got certain genre conventions that they follow. So Wisher movies are, you know, that's why Shaw Brothers did loads of them. That's why Golden Harvest did loads of them. You know, it's 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 because they've got basic plot tropes and characters we understand and there's swordsmen and there's a bit of violence and there might be a bit of love in there and 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 both this and Ashes of Time Redux put try and put sort of a, a more intellectual spin on it and you could argue that both of them fail to engage the audience that would normally be into this kind of movie because I think it'd be fair to say you like a good old Wusha film, right? You, you like you like a. I don't oh, know. I definitely do like uh, Wusha movies. I think because when uh, Crescent Tiger Hidden Dragon came out, I was like just so excited for that movie. And I mean, it obviously led the way. We had a small flurry of similar films, such as like uh, New Dragon Gate in, mm-hmm. which followed in its uh, wake. But I said it was surprising that uh, that was like one of these movies that. Uh, really sort of helped open the doors. I mean, off the back of that, we saw the launch of uh, Hong Kong Legends, uh, one of the first little, like, boutique labels appearing. And I think the fact that Tarantino got behind it as well really helped because, um, uh, not Kaitel, uh, Weinstein originally wanted to cut out the whole desert sequence, mm. and Tarantino fought him to keep the desert sequence in, saying, you know, it's the best part of the movie, which I think is great, even though in retrospect you could obviously lose that sequence and not really lose a lot from the film. But um, no, I mean, I certainly enjoy the, the Wishes series from like, see, we can look at it from like the more uh, like the 1970s sort of like films, um, or we can like look at it in sort of like the art house badass movies, such as like House of uh, Flying Daggers and Hero and uh, Crimson Tide and Dragon. I think as it is. A really interesting interesting genre and obviously it's one that does allow you to do movies such as this uh which take a more sort of like artistic approach to the material compared to like you know food movies which is harder to do like an art house kung fu movie isn't it so it does i'm, I'm just looking what we wrote at this in at this um eastern kickers react thing um anthony i haven't spoken to for a long time his review was snore (laughs) (laughs) and then um he admitted that was a joke because he not only thought it was boring and slow but there is a scene in the film where you just watch somebody sleep um yeah basically me and panosh loved it everybody else was a bit basically sort of thought it was kind of boring boring but beautiful at least in uh kickers also didn't like ghost in the show either which was very surprising bit of yeah that was a bit of a mixed um a mixed thing. Um, Another film I really, I really enjoyed Ghost in the Shell, but that's really heavy on the philosophy. Uh, but at the same time, it really knows how to punch up the action scenes, which makes it more palatable. And I think that's sort of my main gripe here is the fact that we have like these great action sequences, but they're so fleeting. Mm. <laughs> and uh, their inclusion is so, it's almost like an afterthought. But much like Ashes of the Time, I just could not make head or tail of this one. So. Yeah, Ashes of Time is a movie I've never got on with. I've watched both of them once, both versions of it once, and I never really dug it. But again, I think I watched Ashes of Time before I understood the genre. It's trying to put a different 
viewpoint on. And for me, this this movie is just it's doing all the. Um, to use the old Morecambe and Wise joke, mate, I think it's 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 doing all the it's playing all the right notes. It's just not necessarily in the right order. And <laughs> that's it. You can imagine somebody who watches like, do you like jazz? <laughs> that's again, you're, you're doing you're doing great. Stuff. That's another example. Yeah. Um, it, this is, um, I suppose, this is like the that, film version of jazz fusion. Yeah, I I think there's something in that, or um, or if you're into the I don't know blues quartet being pushed down the long flight of stairs is what's in jazz fusion. Or if if you if you if you really get Lou Reed's metal machine music. And you think that's that that that's? Oh, you're that, going to say this is like Fleetwood Mac's Tusk album? Does, does it does it stand up with Transformer? And and some people it will, and some people, well, most people it won't. But um, I yeah, or I'm I unapologetically, I unapologetically love it, and I was really happy to find that I had bought it on Blu-ray originally because it um, I hadn't watched it for a, for a good few years. It's not a film I come back to again and again. Um, and I wish I understood it more. And I, but I'm not going to stand here and lie to you, mate. I read the Wikipedia summary. I read other people's reviews of it, even at the time, to try and make head nor tail of it. Um, There's no shame in that. I don't. I don't want to start shaming people who like read the Wikipedia reviews because a lot of times I read the Wikipedia yeah. synopsis because you know it's what it's there for. Oh, indeed. It's, but it's, I, but sometimes I do. I look at it just to get a quick overview. This is I, I, I couldn't understand the bloody thing. Um, and I was getting bits of it, and it is so talky. And as Anthony pointed out, um, there is literally a scene watching somebody sleeping. And I guess I also something we we're a hundred and what. 110, 12, how many episodes are in? And I am a huge fan of what's called slow cinema. And we've done no slow... Well, we've done... Maybe we could say goodbye, Dragon Inn is slow cinema. But, you know, I'm a huge fan of a lot of these sort of Thai directors that do these films, which are an hour and a half long, and there's about three scenes in them, and it's just sort of people with their urban angst... (laughs) going around the world i think i talk about them sometimes in when i say what i've been watching but we've never actually covered a film like it so the, i'm the core audience for this mate in terms of in terms of the west i, I don't think i'd have stood up and applauded it in Cannes, but i i'd love to see this at the cinema i'd love to see those pictures up on the screen and just see how beautiful it was but i i, I probably could watch this 10 times and not really be honest with you and say that i've understood the plot and I would go with you. I may disappear halfway through for like a nice spinach <laughs> languini, but you know, it would. Um, I would appreciate the the imagery for for part of it. I can't say, it, but it just it just failed to hold my interest, which is mm. very frustrating um, with it. Because as I said when you see a film that is obviously being shot with so much like style and care that it's just when it's just failing to engage you on that sort of base level, it's a little disappointing. Um, but um, no, certainly I'm, uh, having this conversation makes me appreciate a different aspect of it. I mean, that's obviously one of the key reasons we do what we do here is to mm. provide the uh, the counter opinion to things and to reevaluate stuff. So, and and I think I should warn you: this I don't think this film is particularly typical of Hu Xiaoxian's movies either. Okay, um, that's good to know. Um, I mean, I haven't seen him do anything in a wuxia place. Um, the, the other films which I have seen is Daughter of the Nile, 
which is that's much more classic sort of slow cinema modern drama about a young girl growing up in Taiwan um and Millennium Mambo which also stars Shu Kui which is probably her best performance ever so he's he's worked with her a few times they're the only two films we've seen nothing like this um you will it, it, this film um Sight and Sound named it the best film of 2015 make of that what I you will yeah make of that exactly <laughs> what you will um I mean my views on Sight and Sound magazine are uh or out I like there. sound sounds. I mean, I like sound sounds. I think I think be a fire affiliated, aren't they? So I think I think I have issues with anything that they put out for polls and things like that. But Mr. Heskins of Eastern Kicks is now is is now an official votee on it, so I have an inside view oh, on how he? it works. Yeah, so yeah, I, I still I still don't understand how the film that was voted number one in their all-time list got there because there's no evidence in the issue that anyone voted for it. <laughs> but, oh, I'm sure they've got some wonderful spreadsheets to show you. Oh, I'm, I'm not asking for the tallies. I mean, it's not as if it hadn't appeared in the top ten before. It wasn't like from nowhere to number one. But And it is a good film. It's just, really? Everyone decided that was the film? But, yeah, and it got, it got nominated. Um, it was Taiwan's... Entry for the Oscars, but didn't get nominated, which isn't a surprise. But best foreign language film is a category that I have lots of issues with. Period, um, because every country can only have one nomination, and even then, they can't have a film that's in the English language. So Britain can't put them in unless it's in Welsh, and. Uh, yeah, and, like, and, and and they have sometimes a country will have to choose from, you know, you can imagine the difficulty that Spain has and China has in just selecting one movie or Nigeria even. So, yeah, and 208 countries are accepted and they only get one category. Anyway, not going to go on about that. I already have. Um, but, yeah, it won lots of awards and that's what it feels like maybe. It's a film that's going to win awards and we're all going to feel stupid because we don't understand it. But there is a bit of Emperor's New Clothes about it as well, I think. I think it's deliberately obtuse. And and I think that does count against it. But I'm Probably. sure everybody in the Facebook group is going to tell us we're idiots. And it was the uh, it was obvious. Well, you know, let us know. Uh, we've obviously got the Facebook group. We've got uh, the Instagram and Twitter. So let us know uh, in the comment section what you thought of this film. You know, where do you stand on this? Is it... Is it art or a good excuse to have a nap? Do you want um, us? Do you want us to review Ashes of Time next? <laughs> Just, we'll, we'll, we'll double dip it. Uh, so I'm always I'm open to to watching anything, as I said, said before. So um, I said we're always open to to ideas, and even more so if you want to uh, support our Ko-Fi campaign and buy us uh, two coffees and you too can choose our cinematic fate. But what I will say is, mate, is that this can be one of the two art house movies that I won the right to present to you. I'm not going to pick two more. Cause... You can pick, as I said, I'm not, you, I, carry, you want to put your double feature in, you can gar- you carry I, on. This was always going to be one of them, but I'd already chosen it in my head when, when that happened. So, I, I, I mean, I'm... I'm I don't think you hated it. You just didn't get it, and that's 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 a bit different. To uh, I still don't understand why you didn't like the terrorizers at all. I do understand, but I don't agree with you. But don't worry, 
Don't worry, you'll have to find three hours soon for another film that I've got planned. <laughs> no fun. All right, brilliant. But there we go, I think we're done. So yeah, that brings us into tonight's episode. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. If you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us. Leave us a review, as it all helps raise the profile of the show. You can also uh, check out our full archive episodes on our blog, which is asiacinemafilmclub.wordpress.com. And also you will have noticed on our feed that we have started putting out bonus episodes as our World Cinema Podcast. We are extending the cinematic buffet to expand to the wonders of world cinema, so the world outside of Asian cinema. And uh, so far we've had some great picks there, such as like New Order from Spain and Aguirre and the Wrath of God from Herzog. And we've got plenty of more great titles coming up as part of that bonus uh, selections. So uh, those will also be appearing regularly on your uh, podcast feed as well. So uh, all the more reason to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. But for our next episode, I'm going to go with something a little lighter, if that's okay with you. I'm up for anything, mate. Well, Um, I I, I say that now. I haven't heard what it's going to be. Okay. So this is a film uh, directed by Ishiro Honda, who we've obviously mentioned already, one of the uh, key players, not only of the Godzilla movies, but also of uh, Toho Studios. Um, and the film we're going to be looking at is a body horror creature feature uh, from 1963. Um, we're going to be looking at Mantango, which also goes by the wonderful name of Attack of the Mushroom People. And uh, that's what I'm going to have us looking at for our next episode. Right. Well, I've heard of this. I've never seen it. Interesting. Got a bit of a Last of Us vibe about it, mate. It's The Last of Us, Body Snatchers. There's numerous takes on on um, on what this could be described as. So I'm just going to give the, uh, the Google synopsis here of a man in a padded cell tells of being shipwrecked in a foggy island with coastal eating tourists that's all i'm going to say but uh, we're going to be talking about in the next episode so i hope you can join us for that but uh until then thank you as always for listening thank you to my co-host steven pleasure as always and join us next time for tango good night This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. 
Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.